Welcome to Keith Knight, Don't Tread on Anyone. I'm very excited for our guest today. We have Stefan Kinsella. He is a libertarian writer and patent attorney. He's the author of Against Intellectual Property. Find uh, Stefan Kinsella on Twitter at NS Kinsella and visit his website, stefankinsella.com. Both of those are in the description. Uh, Stefan, thank you for coming on. Glad to be here. Thanks, Keith. Uh, Stefan, what is libertarianism, and why are you a libertarian? Well, libertarianism is one of many uh, competing political philosophies, which is basically a view, um, and a political philosophy in general is a, a, a view about what what the law should be, which reflects what our rights should be. And libertarianism has a particular perspective on that. Um, and in particular, the libertarian view is – it's summarized in the non-aggression principle, which is that you have the right to do anything you like in life as long as you don't violate the rights of other people. But that's not really a complete statement because uh, it doesn't define what the rights are. So really the true definition of libertarianism is bound up with what our particular conception of and definition of rights are, and that is basically… <clears throat> a more consistent version of the common sense ethics that most human societies have always held to one extent or the other, which is that everyone should have the right to control their own body, and which is, by the way, is a type of scarce resource. And with respect to other things in the world that we need to use to live and to act, uh, other scarce resources, that is, or as Mises calls it, scarce means of action, then there are owners of those things as well. And we determine who the owners are by whoever basically started using it first or who transferred it voluntarily, consensually by contract to someone else. So – and those are kind of the common sense rules that most people believe as children or as – or even in society. You know, Don't steal from people. Don't hurt them. Um, don't attack people without provocation. So the libertarian view just uh, takes that idea and makes it a lot more consistent and extends it in a more formal way to property rights in general. You know, I ask a lot of I ask a lot of people uh, what their views are on the world, and at some point in the conversation, a lot of people will say, "You know, so long as you don't enforce your views on anyone else, I I, I'm, I believe in live and let live." But for some reason, they don't extend that law, that principle, to one group, and it's the government group. How did uh, governments convince people that uh, they did not have to abide by morality, uh, property rights, and the non-aggression principle? That's a tough one because I think if we knew the answer, we might be able to stop it um, more quickly than it looks like we're going to be able to. Um, you know, basically, so this is the point about where I said libertarians are just more consistent. Um, and so the, the problem is other people, they have our basic values don't hit people, don't steal, don't kill people who don't deserve it. But then they make exceptions for the state. So now why do they do that? They, they do that because if there's just sort of a public goods problem – not public goods, more like a, a public choice problem. Um, or do they do it because the state – while the state is bad at most things, it's very incompetent and corrupt and inept and inefficient. It's actually good at a few things. It's good at – it's good at destruction, right? So uh, war and killing and destruction and impoverishing us. Uh, and is it also good at propaganda, basically? It is good at it in the sense that it has found its purchase onto the main institutions in society that lets it control it, and it's done that systematically 
eye of any given person, but over time you'll see that the state apparatus has an incentive to take control of <clears throat> basically institutions that it, that it can use to propagandize the people, to make them believe that it's indispensable and necessary. So even though people might have an intuitive reaction against what the government does, if they believe that you have to have the government no matter what, it's essential, it's necessary, then they'll put up with it, right? They'll put up with the exceptions to their basic rules. So what the state does is it takes over um, communication and the roads and transportation and then law, right? The enforcement of law, uh, the, the courts, the judges, uh, the judging functions, and then education, right? So you have public education. And, uh, and finally, it takes over money as well. So it basically has it put itself into a place where it controls all these things, and all these things are important to life. And so when people identify these things with the state, they think the state is essential because they, they start believing that if you get rid of the state, you wouldn't have education, you wouldn't have roads, you wouldn't have defense, you wouldn't have police, you wouldn't have law, you might not even have language, right? <laughs> because the government regulates what language is. Uh, you might not have math, you might not have spaceships going to the moon. So they start thinking of, of the things the state does as essential, and now it's healthcare, of course. So uh, the, this is what the state has done. Um, and of course, public education is a big part of that because if the government employees are teaching our children, um, then they're going to teach them the state is necessary. So kids are going to gradually start believing this over time, so they get brainwashed and propagandized. So that's that's one great thing about the internet is and, and informal ways of education and the growing wealth in the world. I think the state's propaganda is starting to break down a little bit. Most most more more and more people. Uh, sneer at the state and make fun of the state, even though they still think that we need it for now. What is the difference between government and the state? Well, this is a semantic issue. It depends upon what the what just what you use the words for. Um, in common parlance, especially among libertarians, they're often used as synonyms, but not always and not consistently. And even the government itself or the state, I should say, <laughs> doesn't do this. So, for example, you'll 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 hear talk of. Um, in the U.S. of a government shutdown. Now, obviously, they don't mean the, the entire state is going to shut down. So even the, the state itself distinguishes sort of vaguely between what they mean by the government and what they mean by the state. And, of course, in parliamentary systems, you'll hear them talk of, a, of, of forming a government, right, after an election. And they don't mean there's, they're forming a state. So uh, in, in many European countries, uh, when they use the word government, they're referring to what we in the U.S. would call the administration, like the Trump administration, like a temporary uh, group of administrators of the state, not counting the, 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 the functionaries who always live behind the scenes, the, the deep state, some people call it. Um, I think when we're being precise and technical, and I think Albert J. Nock uh, had some writing about this too – we should distinguish government from state because government just means the governing institutions of society, right, or the, uh, the governance of society. And we libertarians, we anarchist libertarians, think that you can have law and order without the state. So if you want to say government is the agency that, that basically enforces law, let's say, then we do believe in government. It just would be private government, just like we believe in private roads. But if you talk to a, a, someone with mainstream views, they can't imagine uh, an interstate highway system or, or big roads without the state. So when you say you're in favor of roads, 
they assume you must be in favor of the state because they don't think it's possible without the state. Or conversely, if you say you're against the state, they think that you're against roads and you're against education and you're against uh, uh, law. So the, the common assumption is to equate government with the state just like most people equate public defense and, and law and roads with the state. But we anarchists don't agree with that. So we need to we need to point out that just because we're in favor of or opposed to the state that is we believe it's illegitimate and criminal <clears throat> doesn't mean we're opposed to the things that the state is doing now that is co-opted or at least the good things the state is doing or the non-evil things i would say <laughs> it doesn't do very much very good uh there's been a great surge in openly being socialist and that being okay with Bernie Sanders in America and Jeremy Corbyn in uh, in England, a lot of people see public as something that's open to everyone and accessible, and private as something that is sort of excludes people and you have to pay for it, and it's uh, it, and it's much harder on those who are less fortunate. Uh, how do you uh, explain to people that uh, might fear that those who are who are most vulnerable in society who Th they believe that they need a state to fight the privateers in society. How do you convince those people that private is better than public? I mean, it's difficult. I mean, we libertarians, uh, what, what we face is, I was just listening to one of Tom Woods' recent podcasts with Stephen Molyneux, and they're going over the, the things that you hear over and over again, the same old kind of stupid questions. And we've, we've any number of our thinkers have answered them decisively and then you'll get the same question a week later um so it's hard especially if people don't want to think and really read and listen and learn and challenge their assumptions um especially as you get older a lot of people don't want to change their mind so that's one reason it's important to get the youth which is one good thing about say the ron paul movement and the fact that a lot of things is interesting the young people bitcoin things like that things that are entrees and um to people starting to think about this before their minds have have closed. <laughs> um, but you know, you do what Bastiat did. And Bastiat pointed out that if it's wrong for you to do it, it's wrong for others to do it um, in concert. Um, <laughs> you point to history. You point out that, look, we, humans have lived in utter misery for tens of thousands of years and, and, and it, it, it basically starvation levels until about three, four hundred years ago. And with the advent of the agricultural and then industrial revolution, which is basically the result of some form of capitalism and respect for private property rights. Only then do we start having enough wealth um, that we even have the luxury of having the question about what do we do with this excess wealth, right? Um, so if you look, the, the private sector has always made us better off. You just point to everything people like. They like Apple iPhones, they like their computers, they like their cars, they like electricity, um, and they like movies. These things are all basically products of the free market, the tech sector, the arts community, all the private, you know, civil, private and civil society, and everything they hate, uh, cops being too rough to you, getting speeding tickets, um, the going to the DMV to get your driver's license, which is always a miserable experience, trying to get your passport renewed. People have a feel for this. <clears throat> you, there was a hope, I thought, after, and I still think so, after the fall of communism in 91. 1991, that was an educating event for a lot of people who don't think very conceptually and don't have a lot of knowledge about economics. 
but at least they saw before their own eyes that central planning just collapsed and didn't work. And there's there's a, a greater, still dim, but a greater awareness just in general in society that we need free markets to generate the wealth. Even if the Obama types want to severely limit it and regulate it and steal parts of it and redistribute parts, they all know that we need a private, a more or less private sector generating the wealth. And I think that's still recognized. Um, so I think a lot of these people that say they're socialists, I, I have trouble believing many of them are really serious. Um, they don't really seem to want the state to centralize the means of production. They just want it to redistribute more and to give them free stuff. So to them, socialism is a feel-good word. You know, it's whatever, whatever I like is socialism. Um, and of course, it's sort of a, it's sort of the, uh, um, one of the pitfalls of having the wealth that capitalism creates is that people forget the connection to where it comes from. And they just want to use the government to redistribute it. So they, they, let's just hope they don't kill the goose that lays the golden egg, but they do want to take parts of it. Sure. I remember reading A Theory of Capitalism and Socialism by Hans-Hermann Hoppe, and he talks about the country of Germany. Same people, same language, same history, same culture, cut into two. One east, one west, one so much more successful than the other. The Berlin, uh, the the fall of the Berlin Wall was just was just such a great example of why private property and free markets are superior than uh, than the state controlling the factors of production. I remember that example ju just blowing my mind. And then North Korea and South Korea are also two e excellent examples. The Discussion between uh, Stefan Molyneux and Tom Woods. Uh, I believe the talk is stolen history. Uh, what is what are some of the uh, biggest historical misconceptions statists have about uh, capitalism and free markets? Hmm. Historical misconceptions. Well, of course, as as Molyneux and uh, Woods discussed, it's the child labor issue. You know, the idea that uh, without government intervening as a benevolent overlord that we would you know we would have sweatshops employing children of course of course they were they to the extent children worked it was because it was necessary for survival because we were living against in a world of mass scarcity and it's difficult to achieve success and finally with human ingenuity and the division of labor and the the accumulation of capital and the gradual increase in private property norms which is the what undergirds capitalism Finally, we reached, started reaching critical mass where we started generating excess wealth and we could have a little bit of luxury in our lives. Uh, and of course, parents love their children. They don't want to work them to the bone. And the reason they switched from the farms to the cities was because that was even better for them. It wasn't as good as we have it now, but it was even better. Than this. So that's a huge, that's a huge myth, of course. And then, you know, that's by maybe the more intelligent Marxists. But nowadays you have a bunch of ignorant know-nothings who they don't don't understand anything about history, about even the the founding of the Constitution, um, uh, or even the original purpose of the Constitution. So, I mean, there's just too many errors to 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 list. But I'd say one big source of this is this pervasive Marxian outlook that does influence a lot of academia, and then the, the teachers, and then of course the students. They pick up on this, right? They pick up on this critical. They pick up on this view of the viewing history, uh, viewing history and society in terms of exploitation of one group by the other, which is true. They just get it wrong. This is what Hans Hermann Hoppe points out, almost right. 
theory was right, everything was right. It's just he identified the nature of exploitation incorrectly. You know, because he didn't have a proper understanding of the of the source of wealth and and an Austrian subjective understanding of value that value is a subjective thing, it's not a quantity. And because they didn't really understand economics, the division of labor, that if um, if a, if an employer makes a profit, he must be stealing the surplus labor value of his employees. So that's a type of exploitation or theft. And once you make that one mistake, it colors your entire interpretation of history. But Hoppe would say, no, exploitation means violating the property borders of someone else's legitimately acquired property, phys violating the physical integrity of their body or their property. That's what exploitation is. And if you see it in that light, then you see the state itself is the world's biggest exploiter. Now, that's the class distinction we have. We have the tax eaters and the controlling parasitical class versus the controlled and the um, productive people who are being stolen from and robbed. Yeah, Tom Woods has a great video. The one question Bernie Sanders supporters won't answer, and it's about the inequality of the average American and the average Haitian, the average Guatemalan, the average person in Bangladesh. <coughs> you are a hundred times richer than them. Do they have the right to form a United Nations and forcibly take stuff from you and give it to them? Are you making them poor by you having a phone, a fan, a computer, uh, you know, a, a mouse pad? Uh, I'm they get into so many things. The leading story on Twitter is LeBron James wore equality shoes in a dig at Trump. LeBron James talking about equality. Just unbelievable that uh, that the Marxist ideas go go so far and uh, and so deep. I want to ask you, uh, what is the uh, why is capitalism morally and economically superior to socialism, fascism, or communism? Well, so this word definitions come into play, right? So uh, as and Hans is in his theory of socialism and capitalism, he defines them like in an essentialist kind of way. The, the traditional definition uh, of socialism would be state or, or centralized or collectivized control of the means of production. Uh, but for a libertarian, means of production is just one type of property, and it's, it doesn't have any, any distinct significance uh, outside of economics itself. So the essence of what socialism is is basically it's uh, you can view uh, private property rights under capitalism um, as the private property rights that that would would obtain if if everyone respected each other's in, uh, bodily integrity and respected the right of someone to control a resource that they either homesteaded themselves or that they got by contract. Okay, so that is pure capitalism. <clears throat> now, when you have people out there that are contestants and have free will, they can choose to disregard these these property norms that enter society. They can choose to take your body or use it or things that you own without your permission in a violent sort of struggle, right? And we call that crime or private crime. Now, when, when it's done in an institutionalized way, that is by an institution that is seen as legitimate in society and therefore has the ability to do it on a widespread scale, namely the state, then that's what Hans would call socialism. So socialism is simply the institutionalized or widespread or public um, initiation of force against other people and their property or, or aggression. So the reason why it's inferior ethically is because it, it's based upon a set of rules that could never be normatively justified. They couldn't be justified because the only purpose of norms 
of property rules, that is, is to allocate the right to control a resource that otherwise there could be a violent conflict over. So people that come together in society tend to prefer to have a, a system where we can cooperate and use our resources peacefully and without always being under threat or having to physically defend it against other people. So that you have to come up with a set of rules. That's what property rules are. And if those rules are going to persist in society and be, be respected, they have to be natural. That is, they have to conform to what people already do. Uh, they can't be unnatural. They can't be arbitrary, and they have to be fair, that is, defensible. And because we all would say that resources have to be used in the first place, you couldn't have a rule that didn't permit someone to homestead things. They have to be able to do that. And because every person fighting against another person is in a similar stance, you know, if I say that I have the right to own your body, I'm, I'm making a contradiction because I have to claim the right to own my body to be able to be the owner of you. That's why self-ownership comes out of this as the only fair rule. So you have these primitive, pretty fair elementary rules, you know, um, and those are the only ones that can be defended argumentatively. The socialist rule would always have to be something of the lines of, I can hit you, but you can't hit me. And as Hans calls it in his argumentation ethics, Hans Hoppe, that's a partic particularistic rule, right? It's not a general one that could be universalizable could never be accepted as fair by everyone. So when you go through these things, the only rules that can survive this test of what could be a fair rule, that could be a practical rule, and a rule that could help us live in cooperation and peace to together, the only rules that survive are the, the foundational property rules of capitalism. And everything else is basically a sense of, of slave ownership or of, or of unjustified theft. That's the reason. In the introduction to Ethics of Liberty, Hans Hoppe says John Rawls, the most famous political philosopher, uh, he, he, he gives him that title. Uh, he, he says in his entire book, he doesn't address scarcity. Why is scarcity important? Yeah, I think that's true. And in fact, um, I think even some of um, Hoppe's precursors didn't give it full um, um, attention. They took it for granted. Even Rothbard, for example, doesn't talk a lot about scarcity in a proprietarian sense. Some earlier thinkers did, like Hume. Hume did, uh, and, and, and the reason why it's important is because, as Mises, the, the great Austrian economist, uh, explains, what we humans find, we, we humans are actors. We find ourselves in a situation on the earth where we have control over our bodies and over some things in the environment, right? And these are called scarce means, means of action. And we use these things to try to interfere with the course of events. So we have in our minds some idea about what's going to happen in the very near future or in the distant future. And it makes, Mises calls it uneasy. It makes us uneasy. We have a feeling of uneasiness. We don't like what's coming. So, you know, if I feel hunger, I start getting the idea that I'm going to be very hungry pretty soon if I don't do something about it. Um, or if I don't build a house then uh, with, with, with a, a fortress, then maybe the wolves will eat me or eat my children. You know, so you, you get these ideas in your head about what's going to transpire in the future if you don't intervene. So humans, when humans act, what they're doing is intervening in the world, trying to change the future that would otherwise come. And to do that, they use these scarce means. Um, if there was no scarcity, we would have no problem. We wouldn't have any problems in life. You wouldn't have any problem obtaining food or security or safety. 
or anything. You wouldn't have conflict with other people because conflict just is the, 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 the strife between two actors over a scarce thing, something that by its nature can only be used by one of them at a time, right? So if, if there weren't scarcity, you wouldn't have any problems to solve. You wouldn't have rights. You wouldn't have conflict. You wouldn't have uh, shortages and lack of abundance. But because we do live in a world of scarcity, this means that the human, humans always face a world of scarcity when we're choosing the means to act. And we always face the possibility that other humans might try to violently take those from us because they might desire to use those means too. So scarcity is important to realize why we need property rules in the first place. If you don't quite understand that, then you're going to sort of see property rules in a more utilitarian way like, oh, some kind of institution the government came up with that helps give the right incentive to people, uh, but we can always tweak them left and right, like coasts and people like that. We can tweak them to accomplish different social objectives. So you don't have a fundamentalist understanding of the, the nature of property rights. And then you lose sight of how these little interventions that people are in favor of undercut the very basis of true property rights. Right, like if you start believing in positive rights, saying, "Oh, you have a right to welfare, the right to a house, the right to a job," you undercut the security and other property rights because negative and positive property rights can't coexist. One has to come at the expense of the other. If if I have a right to welfare, that means other people have an obligation to give it to me, which means I have a claim on their property rights. So that makes their property less secure because if they have money in the bank. They can't keep it all. They can't rely upon it because some of it has to go to me because I now have a claim on it because of these positive rights. So if you don't keep your eye on scarcity, you can make mistakes in allocating property. And of course, intellectual property is a prime example of this. Um, the entire edifice of patent and copyright law, for example, um, is, is a huge, um, uh, devastating um uh, hindrance to real property rights because it basically restricts what people can do with their own property and that's because these rights are not anchored in scarcity if if they were they couldn't exist uh one of the big things i hear in the media and a lot of politicians they will uh, they will speak with the assumption that democracy in and of itself is a good thing <coughs> is is democracy a uh, moral way to structure society? Well, I don't think so. I mean, you, you could, of course, argue that some things about democracy as an institutional way to arrange a state or a government are better than other systems, but they all have their drawbacks. And, of course, as an anarchist, you believe the state itself is always inherently a criminal organization, so there's no really good way to run the state. Um, the problem with democracy is it might have blunted some of the edges of what the state can get away with because everyone sort of feels like we are the state, we are the government, or they have they have siblings and, and, and family members who work for the government. Uh, everyone thinks they have the right to vote, so they have a say-so in it. But what this does is it also removes their squealing about it. You know, when there's a clear distinction between the, the subjects of a state, let's say let's say a monarchy or even a tyrannical state, a totalitarian state, everyone knows which side they're on. You're either a subject of the state and you're being ruled by the rulers or you're part of the ruling class. And that always means that people, if, if the ruling class gets too out of hand, they're always smaller than the people they rule. That's the whole purpose of this. It's like a pyramid system, right? 
then there's always a chance of decapitating the leader. You can just kill the guy, um, or there could be a revolution. You could you could overturn him. Um, so while there could be monarchs or totalitarian despots, emperors that can be very tyrannical, they could always they could also be good on occasion. You could get a good monarch on occasion. But the logic of democracy is that you're never going to get a good government because you have special interest groups that have a strong interest in. And, and lobbying for favors for things that favor their their group, and it only costs the average populace a little bit. So the costs are diffuse and spread out. So people don't have an interest in learning about it or in complaining. And so every group starts getting these favors that just encrust and and you know encumber the state over time or society, I should say. Um, so you know that's one of the problems with democracy. Is it's just another form of state, and people are. People will put up with a lot more taxation if they believe that it's their choice, right? Than they would if it was a monarch taxing them. To make a simple example, so that's one of the drawbacks of democracy. Sargon of Akkad <coughs> made a video responding to Larkin Rose and other popular libertarians, saying that the libertarian anarchist position, specifically, is completely illegitimate. And the state is legitimate because of the social contract theory. What is your uh, position, view, uh, some ideas you have on the social contract theory as a form of justifying the state's existence? Well, that's the argument that um, uh, you can imagine a hypothetical contract um, that everyone so-called would agree to because it's in their interest to have a state instead of having a state of anarchy. And it's it's a horrible it's a horrible argument. It's, John Rawls has something similar, which where he imagines that people up in limbo before their souls get put into human bodies, and they don't know you don't know which body you're going to be put into. You don't know if you're going to be put into the a poor person's body or a rich person's body or what. So you're behind a veil of ignorance. So everyone would they would not agree to just a free-for-all where it's totally luck of the draw. They would only agree to having freedom where the freedom benefits the, the least worst off, sort of like an insurance policy. Uh, and the social contract theory is a little bit like that. I think it's just a totally bankrupt argument um, for, for, for several reasons. Number one, there never was any actual contract. Okay, And even if there was a contract, it's only between the living the people living at the time. And it wouldn't bind the the heirs of those people, which is what I think Thomas Jefferson recognized. You know, every generation has the right to make up their own minds. In other words, we don't have the right to encumber um, the freedoms of our children and our grandchildren. And finally, contract, of course, uh, under the Rothbardian view, is not about binding promises. Contract is just the way that owners of resources that uh, uh, can can give permission to others to use those resources or to transfer uh, ownership of them to someone else. So a contract is simply the assignment of property rights in something you own to someone else. So if I give you my car by contract, that's what the contract does. It transfers ownership of the car from you to me. Contract is not what most people commonly think of it as, as, um, as some kind of solemn promise that you make that is binding on you forever. Um, uh, such that you could agree now to live under tyranny and you wouldn't be able to change your mind later. You can join the army, and once you sign on the dotted line, the army won't let you quit. You're basically a slave now. Uh, you know, Under libertarian principles, in my opinion, not under everyone's opinion, but under mine and Rothbard's, 
um, certain rights are, are inalienable. And just because you make a promise to do something doesn't mean you can't change your mind later. You know, if a girl is on a date with a guy and she says, hey, I'm going to give you sex later at the end of the date. And when, when the date's over and he drops her off at home, she says, no, I'll change my mind. The guy can't just rape her. He doesn't have the right to. She has the right to change her mind. If someone agrees to a boxing match and uh, they're about to enter the ring and they, they get cold feet and they decide not to box, they want to go be a, a pacifist Buddhist monk forever, he couldn't be grabbed forcefully and thrown into the ring and beaten to a pulp just because he promised to do it. But yet this is the conception people have of contract because they don't have a deep understanding of, of the nature of contract or of property rights. Even many libertarians are confused about this because they equate – they think contracts are effective under the law because they are just the operation of a binding promise, but they're not, as Rothbard um, pointed out in The Ethics of Liberty. Uh, why was Robert Nozick <laughs> wrong about the uh, legitimacy of a night watchman state? Well, um, and Rothbard uh, totally eviscerates him in his article. I think it's in The Ethics of Liberty, the uh, Robert Nozick and the Immaculate Conception of the State, sort of for the reasons that the, the, uh, the, uh, the social contract don't work. Um, Nozick is trying to argue that there could be a series of steps you could take from a state of libertarian anarchy that would gradually get you to something that is um, an ultra-minarchist ultra utopia, that it, there, there would be a state. And he shows that – he tries to argue every one of those steps could be legitimate for various reasons, and therefore um, a minimal state is, is justified, and the state is not inherently unjust. So one problem with the argument is that that's just not – it didn't happen this way. There, there was no series of ultra-pure uh, steps that he outlines that led us from a, a previous just system to a current minimal state, which would also be just. It just didn't happen historically that way. So his argument at most is a hypothetical that you could have one someday, but our current state is rooted in robbery and – um, and oppression, so it's not just it's not just even by his principles, and of course it's not a minimal state either. So even by his principles, it would have already outgrown its just its its, its justifiability because it's more than a minimal state. Um, but I think his central mistake is in the idea that it's permissible for a dominant defense agency. So he imagines di different defense agencies emerging that are all private and none of them violate rights. But one of them becomes dominant just because of network effects, sort of like Bitcoin's becoming dominant now and Facebook has become dominant, etc. right? Google. <clears throat> so he imagines one becoming dominant, and that dominant agency on behalf of its existing customers would have the right to outlaw competition. That is, they would have the right to use force against its competitors to stop them from arresting its own customers because it's too risky. Now, that's the mistake in his argument because… There's nothing. There's no requirement that the dominant agency show that the other agencies are any riskier than it is. They could all be equally fair and libertarian, but they just—he just says the dominant agency has the right to do that because it is protecting its own customers' rights from the risk of a risky, a false arrest by one of these little players. So it can it can outlaw them as long as it compensates them, and in that way, this, the power of the state to monopolize force in a given area would grow, and that's his key mistake, I believe. Um, and, and that goes hand-in-hand hand with what I pointed out, what others have pointed out, 
To have a state, you need one of two things. The state has to either have the power to tax or it has to have the power to outlaw competition. And either one actually uh, implies the other, and they usually go together. Because if you can tax, let's say you didn't have the right to outlaw competition. The dominant agency could tax, and therefore it could subsidize its services, and it could outcompete all the other defense agencies because um, they would be more expensive to customers. Similar to the way that most people send their children to public schools now, free once you've paid for it with your property taxes. And so private schools only can, can only have about 10% of the nation's kids because only the very rich can basically afford to do that, right? Um, and likewise, if the state had the power to stop competition, that would allow it to face less competition, which would allow it to charge monopoly prices, which is the same thing as a tax. So you see that one of each one of those implies the other. And by Nozick, by favoring basically the second, he's in, in effect also favoring taxation because if you can charge people a monopoly price for a service that they, you're not permitting them to purchase from anyone else, that's the same as taxing them. Yeah, it's it's amazing that the minarchist argument lies on, well, what if a monopoly exists? We're so afraid, therefore we're going to justify a monopoly with this group of people called the state. Yeah, um, it's like it's like patent law. You know, I'm a big opponent of patent and copyright law, which are basically monopoly privileges the government grants to people. And then people say they're against monopoly. And so if you have a company like Apple or some other company that has tons of patents they've acquired by government grant and then they use those to basically stop competition which helps cause a cartel or a monopoly and then the FTC comes in and says hey you're abusing your you're abusing your position as a patent holder it's like well the government gives you a monopoly and then they penalize you for being, for being a monopolist i mean it's schizophrenic well yeah and it gets back to walter block's favorite joke of the three guys in prison, one for price gouging, one for undercutting, and the other for pooling. It's like it, 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 it's almost yeah. like there's the, the, yeah. there's if no you, winning. Yeah, if you charge too if you charge too little, that's called attempted monopolization by predatory price cutting. If you charge the same, you must be in collusion with other companies, which is a violation of uh, the Sherman Antitrust Act. And if you charge too much, much it must be because you've acquired a position of dominance. And you're the monopolist, and now you're abusing your monopoly position. So whatever you do, the government can go after you. And Woods, right. Tom Woods also made this great point with us, with Molyneux in the video we referenced earlier. He said, no company would ever say, hey, boss, I got a great idea. We're going to lose money for years, and then once we got a big enough chunk of the market we're going to jack up prices don't worry no other competitors were coming it, it really is a yeah. lunatic idea what, what, when you think yeah, about actually uh D dominique uh, dt armentano um i read a lot of his books back in, when i was younger um he's got some of the classic cases uh in kind of the quasi austrian tradition against uh, i think it's called the case antitrust the case for repeal and there's another one too yeah, and he points out that the whole strategy makes no sense because you basically are losing money by undercutting your, your competitors. And the, the more successful you are, the more money you lose, right? Because the more customers you draw towards you, the more you're losing every day. And the day that you finally get to start charging a higher price again, like when you've driven all your competitors out of business, as soon as you, as soon as you go a, 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 a dollar above the market, fair market price, what you need to do to recoup all the money you've lost getting there, 
then other companies will just start up and they'll start competing with you and you're screwed. I mean, it's, it just doesn't work in history at all like this. Well, and the people that do get big market shares, they only do so because they're meeting consumer demand at the lowest price, creating the greatest service. John D. Rockefeller and Andrew Carnegie, not monopolists, but had very large market shares because they were constantly lowering the price and increasing the efficiency of uh, of products and services in their arena. Same thing with Cornelius Vanderbilt. The Myth of the yeah. Robber Barons by Bert yeah. Folsom is a great book on that. Yeah, I would, I would, I agree with that. Mostly, I would put some caveats on that. In today's world, where intellectual property dominant in the high tech industries, that it does actually do think it causes some company to be bigger than they would, or to have basically a cartel that they wouldn't have without the effect of patents, because they can stop competition. I think there is a big distorting effect because of patents, in particular, in pharmaceuticals. Uh, in the smartphone industry, um, in those areas. But yeah, but by and large, in a free market, there would be a tendency for companies who got large, they got large because they were satisfying consumer demand. And it's not just economic illiteracy with monopolies. It's also the left saying that Donald Trump, the president, and the police are basically crazy racists endorsed by the KKK. By the way, they should have a monopoly on the nation's health care uh, funding as well as the nation's gun supply. It, it's like, I, I don't know how people can hold both of those positions simultaneously. I don't either. And you asked earlier about like, how do you persuade people uh, uh, of the inconsistency? Because you point this stuff out all the time and it's, it's, they, they, they hate the current administration and yet they love democracy, which is what got Trump in office, right? They, they're terrified of guns, and yet they want the government to have guns. Uh, so I don't, yeah, I don't understand how they can hold all these these views either. Uh, pe people say we should ban guns. I said I agree. Let's start with the government, and they they ch they change their, their they change the topic right away. Yeah. You know, listening to the people of the Ayn Rand Institute and Randians like. Um, Jan Helfeld and Yaron Brook, they can spend hours making excellent points on how government is immoral, it initiates the use of force, it's inefficient, giving all these historical examples and all these philosophical great methodologies. But then they say, if there is no state, that there will be absolute utter chaos. How do, why are you convinced that an anarchist society, a libertarian anarchist society without a state, would not uh, render into some kind of uh, property-violating chaos? Well, okay, so um, – well, let's talk about the, the Randians for a second. At least Ayn Rand, to her credit, she, she resisted the notion that her, her view of the necessity of a government implied taxation. She, she, she kind of hedged her bets and uh, said, well, you can have a – a lottery, which makes no sense. Um, but she tried to say she didn't believe in taxes, although it wouldn't be the first thing she would get rid of, or she said something like that. But of course, she's confused because if the government has a monopoly, as I said earlier, it implies effectively the power to tax. But some of her more modern followers, like Jan Helfeld and even David Kelly, who's a friend of mine, they've admitted uh, recently, uh, in the last couple of years, they've admitted that yeah, they think Rand was wrong, that the government does need to have the right to tax, and taxation is just fine. So they've, they've explicitly admitted this um, in a discussion with each other, I believe. So at least they're more consistent if, you know. And then the other thing is, yeah, in the, I had a debate with um, 
um, one of the objectivists at Porkfest a few years ago. David Kelly moderated. It was uh, Will. Well, I forgot his last name, but anyway, it was about anarchy. And um, you know, David asked him a question I had asked, which was, "Yeah, what is the what is the minarchist argument to not having a one world government? Because if you think that you can't have competition in states." Well, we do. We have 200 countries in the world. Like, do we need to have a one-world government? And th there's really no good argument against that um, for the minarchist. Um, so, as for chaos, um, look, I, my my anarchism is more of a principles-based thing. It's basically I'm simply observing that just as an act of aggression could never be justified argumentatively, and just as a law that protects private property rights can't be coherently criticized that a state by its nature has to commit aggression and therefore is criminal. Okay, that's the main point. It doesn't really make any other points. It doesn't make any predictive points about what things are going to be like. Now you could say that if there's if there's no state, there's no public aggression, there's going to be less aggression. You might still have private aggression, but private aggression is not our biggest problem. It's public aggression because the state institutionalized aggression, they can get away with a lot more. So the hope would be that we don't just push a button, a magic button, and tomorrow we wake up having anarchy. What would that even mean? Everyone was brainwashed overnight, or all the guns disappeared. Uh, you know, all government buildings were ground into dust. I, people don't specify these button pushing hypotheticals enough to really evaluate them. In my view, the only way we're ever going to achieve uh, a more full fledged libertarian society is if over time the institutions reflect that. And that can come about one of two ways, I think. One, we could transform man's nature and radically change his education so that most people intellectually become libertarians. I don't think that's going to happen. I don't think man's nature is going to change that much, and I don't think many people will ever have an interest in political theory like we do. So they'll never really have a strong uh, intellectual men mental men uh, libertarian mentality. So that's not going to do it, which is one reason I'm a little bit skeptic skeptical of libertarian activism. Especially electoral politics, you know, electoral politics activism as the way to achieve change. I'm not opposed to it. I just don't think that's really going to be what uh, makes us have liberty. I think liberty to exist has to be natural, right? We can't we can't expect it to have been achieved just because enough of us libertarians are out there nudging people and handing people pamphlets on Thanksgiving Day at the dinner table. It, it can't sustain itself. It's got to sustain itself because there's something good about it and natural. And I think as humans over time get richer and more technologically powerful on an individual level, I mean, where we have robots, army robot swarms to protect ourselves and to provide for ourselves, then the government's going to wither away because it'll become more and more irrelevant and more and more uh, powerless, I believe. That's how I think we're going to achieve liberty if we ever do. Um, <clears throat> and I think Rothbard had a point that someone said, well, if you if you have anarchy – What's to keep another state from emerging a few years later? And I think Rothbard's comment was, well, even if that happens, at least we'll have had a, a glorious holiday from the state. <laughs> we would have had one shining moment in history where we were free and there was no government or no state, I should say. Um, so – and the other reason is the government is not the source of order. And it's not that we don't have chaos now because the government prevents it from happening. I would say the government causes more chaos than it prevents because um, the government uh, ruins plans, right, and, and decreases our ability to 
rationally, economically calculate uh, with, with, a, with a stable price system and with a stable set of laws. The laws are always in flux, always about to change. Uh, there's always a business cycle caused by the Fed, and the money supply is always uh, being inflated away. Um, these things, um, it's amazing that capitalism can calculate and have some degree of, of order despite the state's uh, attempts to screw things up. So when you get rid of the state, you get rid of one source of chaos. So I don't think things would get um, more chaotic. In your debates with minarchists, and this actually applies to all status, uh, have you ever gotten a good answer for even if a monopoly needs to exist, why does that group get the monopoly and say not Walmart? If every four years you got to vote for the Walmart CEO, could they then tax you, regulate you, tax your property, make laws you have to abide by, and cage you for not abiding by them? Well, I don't know if I've ever actually made that particular argument, so I don't know if I've gotten a good answer to it. <laughs> um, I suppose the thing, the the, the argument would be uh, something along Mises' lines. You know, uh, some some libertarians say Mises was almost an anarchist, um, but he, I think Mises had this sort of pragmatic view that there's a certain minimal size of a community, like an administrative unit, that you need to run something like a government. I don't know what it was, maybe the size of a town or 20,000 people, something like that. But it couldn't be down to the individual level. It's just not practical. You have to have some critical mass, but you could have still hyper decentralization if you had 20,000 person states around the world. You could have, I can't do the math in my head, but you probably have 10,000, 20,000, 50,000 states, right? City states, like in the old days, right? So, um, I suppose their answer would be that this is, um, this is not a market thing. It's a, it's a, um, it's a political thing. This is what the Randians think. So it, it can't be in the hands of a Walmart. Uh, and plus, it's probably too small, although the Walmart Corporation is very large. But you know, in a given town, you, you need a municipal form of government to run it. But that's just simply because they, they've, they've never seen it being done another way. Even if, even if it's been done another way in certain episodes in history to one degree or the other, like in Ireland, most people have no – conception of that and they think of that as the dark old days right semi-chaotic just like they think of the wild west in the u.s as being um the wild west when you know there's what's the classic article of the the not so wild wild west <laughs> you know so yeah um jared taylor was an attendee and speaker at hans hoppy's uh Property and Freedom Summit a couple years ago. Do you think uh, white advocacy or uh, some racial consciousness for whites uh, plays an important role in uh, spreading the libertarian message? Um, hmm. I wouldn't say I would argue for that. <laughs> no, that's not my perspective. Um, I, I do think there should be nothing wrong with people uh, – not having to be ashamed of their ethnicity or their gender. Um, and there's nothing wrong with pointing out uh, pernicious effects of government policies. But no, I'm like I said, I'm not really into political activism very much myself anyway, but I don't i'm i'm not, I'm not myself a white nationalist, and I have no sympathies for for um for that perspective. And when he, when he spoke, uh, this was years ago. Um, I was there, I spoke, he was a nice guy when I, we, we talked, but he didn't, I didn't hear anything, um, of the type of stuff that's being talked about now by a lot of the alt-right. What is, 
or I, I guess I was reading a history of argumentation ethics. It's like a 100-page essay, and it's just a collection of works. And I was surprised to hear how highly Murray Rothbard thought of Hans Hoppe's argumentation ethics. He thought of it as, as such a great achievement. I'm wondering what you think of as Hans Hoppe's greatest achievements intellectually. Well, yeah, and I've written about this um, in in um, in various places uh, in in the in the uh, discussions of his argumentation ethics, um, and also I've written um, an afterward or a forward or two for for reprints of his uh, books. Um, I think laissez-faire books had a couple of editions um, of uh, theory of socialism and capitalism, and the and uh, a new one called the Great Fiction. And I think I wrote the afterward and forward there. And in those, I sort of summarize a lot of his accomplishments. Um, also, I, I wrote the introduction to his Festschrift, his uh, selection of essays in his honor that was published in 2009 uh, on his 65th birthday. Uh, yeah, eight years ago now. So in those, in, in those places, I, I go through a lot of his accomplishments. And off the top of my head, um, um, well, I think his property theory is extremely important, and that's laid out extremely briefly in chapters one and two, basically. Uh, theory of socialism and capitalism, not his argument for rights, but his his conception of property rights themselves. Um, so he focuses, he turns the focus w from an Austrian and from a radical libertarian perspective back onto scarcity, which I think was a little bit neglected by systematic thinkers before him. So I think that's an important insight. Um, I think his argumentation ethics is one of his crowning achievements, his, his very novel and rigorous defense of libertarian rights. Uh, which has heavily influenced my thinking over the years. Uh, he's got some very intriguing and important work. Uh, of course, his book on democracy, he's sort of changed the the previous sort of default pro-democracy, pro-American view of, of American libertarians into one of more deeper skepticism of the idea that when we went from monarchy to democracy, that it was unalloyed progress. I think people are way more skeptical of that now. So he's had a deep criticism of that. Um, along those lines, he's also he's also had heavily revisionist um, um, uh, a take on immigration, what what the right libertarian perspective should be. And he's gotten heavily criticized by this from a lot of the open borders types, but I think of his critical achievement there is simply observing that as long as you have a state then it's going to have some kind of policy about immigration and what whatever it does it can it's going to cause harm and violate someone's rights if the government prohibits you as an employer let's say from inviting a foreigner to come to your factory to work there it's violating your property rights and he calls that forced exclusion and he's correct about that on the other hand if the state builds a bunch of public roads which connects people to each other, uh, passes laws which prohibit people from discriminating against other people that forces them to associate with each other, uh, and then has a welfare state that subsidizes them with tax dollars of the existing citizens, and then it, it allows some immigrants to come in. That violates some people's rights by forcing them to associate and to support them, and he calls that forced integration. And I think that's actually correct. And so I think what he's pointing out is that we need an anarchist private property society so that there's neither forced integration nor forced exclusion and that we wouldn't even have the concept of immigration anymore. There would be all private property. He's written some intriguing work, uh, stuff, and most of this is either in theory of socialism and capitalism or in his two subsequent works, uh, Economics and Ethics of Private Property or The Great Fiction. Um, <coughs> 
but uh, on methodology and epistemology, that is his theory of, um, of, um, of economic, uh, basically economic epistemology. I think he builds upon Mises' work there. And he also builds upon, not Rand's work exactly, but he, he sets up a realist epistemology, which is anchored uh, not in, um, in Aristotle and, and Ayn Rand, but more in Mises and Kant. So it's realist because it's based upon human action and the idea that when we act, we have to interact with the real world somehow. So that's why praxeology has to be realistic ultimately. Um, he's written some great stuff on monopoly theory, also on the public goods issue, showing that there's no such thing as a public good per se because it's uh, we, the way we classify goods is based upon subjective preferences, and every person individually can do this. And just like a good could be a capital good or a consumer good, some goods can be public or private or part way it could change over time um, and he's also got some intriguing stuff on indifference theory the idea that that uh, you could never demonstrate indifference because you have to act you have to show your preference for what you're pursuing so he's that's got to do with Buridian's ass and all these kind of things that's some kind of intriguing thought experiments um, so I can't and there's five or six others I could think of uh, but uh, uh, I, I kind of list some of those and some of the other things I talked about but yeah, that's a lot of his achievements right there, I would say. If you could recommend one book for all people to read, what book would that be? Probably Economics in One Lesson. Because most people are decent, or we have to count on the fact that they are decent. Otherwise, we could never have civilization. People want good things for themselves, but they also want good things for other people. By and large, we have empathy. Most of us, we're not all psychopaths or sociopaths. Um, so the, the the fundamental problem is just one of, of economic literacy. People don't understand that a lot of the policies that they're in favor of undercut the values that they that most decent people have. So if they had a basic amount of economic literacy, um, that would go a long way towards them not being in favor of policies that uh, that destroy values and that can't work. And of course, there are others like that. Milton Friedman's cap Capitalism and Freedom is really good, and so is. So is Bastiat's The Law. But if it was one book, I think I would go with Hazlitt. <coughs> awesome. Again, I, wa I want to thank you so much for, uh, for taking the time to do this. You can find uh, Stefan Kinsella at NS Kinsella on Twitter. You can also visit his website, stefankinsella.com. He is a libertarian writer and patent attorney. That book, Against Intellectual Property, is terrific. It, it just opened my mind to things I'd never even considered before. Uh, Stefan, any final words of wisdom, any words of advice for uh, the average uh, libertarian voluntarist uh, watching this? Look, I would just say uh, keep studying the stuff. Keep thinking about it. Have an open mind, especially about difficult issues, um, and realize that, you know, the more of a good person you are in your life and the more success you have in just regular endeavors in your career, in your family, you're going to draw people to you by the power of attraction. That's what Leonard Reed talked about, um, the founder of the Foundation for Economic Education. So we don't always have to hit people over the head with things. People are going to come to you when, they, when they're attracted to you by your success in life and they trust you that you're honest and you're decent. And then, and then they'll – They'll maybe some of your ideas will start rubbing off on them when they hear you talking reasonably and uh, from a position of decency and success. Terrific. Thank you so much for your time. Thanks for watching Keith Knight. Don't tread on anyone. Please uh, comment below and subscribe and especially share this video. Thank you again, Mr. Kinsella. Thanks, Keith.